Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Bintree. If I don't know you guys, my name is Caleb Willis. I'm the worship and arts pastor here. Welcome to those of you that are joining us here in the room on this Labor Day weekend, and welcome to those of you tuning in on this extended holiday weekend. Uh, full, full disclosure, I am at my most comfortable on this stage when there is a guitar between me and you, if I'm being honest, but I really am honored. Uh, when Libin was asking me to teach a few weeks ago, I just asked him a question, hey, do you have any, any specific ideas of where you want the sermon to go? Uh, do you want me to set up our next series? Do you want me to kind of like tie a bow on, on the last one? And he just said, wherever the spirit leads you. I said, awesome. I, I honestly would have maybe rather had heard him say, I need you to sum up the entire book of Revelation in 30 minutes. <laughs> Make it work. I do, I do my best when I am given overly specific instructions. If you don't believe me, you can just ask my wife, Kim. Uh, it, it's really true. And so I start brainstorming. My mind's going a little bit crazy. I'm thinking about all the stories in scripture that I really enjoy. One of my favorites is the story of Joseph in Genesis. It's a beautiful Old Testament story where Joseph is this type of Christ, but that's like 13 chapters long. There's no way we're gonna summarize that in time. Then I think, well, I could teach on worship, but they would see that coming, so we can't do that either. And so I'm, my brain is just going and going and going, and I have a conversation with one of our pastors, Steve, and he said, dude, you know what? Honestly, the best message you can teach is just sharing what God's teaching you right now. And I immediately knew in that moment that we're going to Psalm chapter 16. And this uh, scripture, I'm in an awkwardly vulnerable place with you this morning because I'm not approaching this as though it's some spiritual thing that I've arrived at or that I've discovered and now I'm here to help you figure out how to discover it. This is a journey I'm very much so in process on. I'm still wrestling with the gravity and the weightiness of this scripture. And so this morning, I really just wanna invite you in to wrestle with me. So can I pray for our time? together and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, like Corbin mentioned earlier, we recognize that where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there with us. And so I don't want us to take lightly or take for granted the freedom that we have and the opportunity to gather weekly, to open your word publicly and to study it. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you speak through me, get me out of the way, <laughs> make these words be yours. And would you speak to us? Would you meet us in this uh, time of wrestling? We love you. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So this journey for me started back in January of 2020. I decided for the third straight year in a row that I was going to, for the first time, read the Bible all the way through in one calendar year, all right? So I, I printed out my, my Bible reading plan, I got to it, and then when we got to March of 2020, I was about three months behind on my Bible reading plan. <laughs> and we all know what happened here in the United States in March of 2020. A lot of awful things happened here that year, but one of the very, very tiny slivers of a silver lining for me personally is that I finally got to read through the entirety of scripture in one calendar year. But most of that time was spent speed reading, trying to catch up from being so far behind in my Bible reading plan that it wasn't super fruitful. But I'm reading and I finally get to the Psalms and I get to Psalm 16, what Avery just read beautifully over us. And I get to verse two and I just stopped. 
I said to the Lord, you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. And I have one of those Bibles that has the margins in the corners for you to kind of scribble down some notes, some journal entries, maybe some quotes from pastors. And I remember grabbing a pen and right next to the apart from you, I have no good thing. I just wrote, I don't know if I believe that. It's a little bit of a sketchy thing to write in your Bible. But I think what the Lord was calling out in me that day and what I wanna bring to you this morning was this recognition that I believed that, like I thought that to be true in my head, in my heart. And if you're a believer in Jesus, I, I can almost guarantee that if someone were to walk up to you and ask you, hey, is Jesus the best thing in your life? Your answer would be yes. But I think what the Lord was calling out in me that day is while I believe it in my head, in my heart, the way I live out my daily walk might not be in sync with it. And so I think he's invited me on this wrestling process and this journey that I'm still in. And I think I've discovered that there are three different hiccups, potholes, hurdles, whatever verbiage and language you wanna use to describe it, that kind of distract us from keeping God as our primary good thing. Psalm 16, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. And I think it all starts for us at the very baseline of how we define goodness. I think the first hurdle that we hit is that we attempt to redefine what is good. We attempt to redefine what is good. Psalm 73 actually gives us a definition of what goodness is. It says, but as for me, the very nearness of God is my good. The proximity of God to me is what's my ultimate good. We're gonna come back to that scripture a little bit later, but I think one of the struggles that I've found and that I think pertains to our culture specifically in this here and now moment is we've chosen to redefine good on our own terms. Good is really what we prefer. Good is our convenience. Good is our natural heart's desire and inclination. Good is, uh, something's good, we call it good if it doesn't like really ruffle any feathers or offend anybody. It makes me think about the story of the garden in Genesis chapter three. It's where the serpent convinces Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. How does he start his pitch? He says, did God really say? Like, did he really say? In other words, do you trust that what God has called good for you is actually what's good for you? And so we see the very first sin in all of humankind history happens as the result of the serpent redefining what is good. Pastor John Mark Comer says this of this serpent's moment in Genesis chapter three. He says, the Genesis three lie is the paradigmatic lie behind all lies. The deception is and always has been twofold. One, to seize autonomy from God. And two, to redefine good and evil based on the voice in our heads and the inclination of our hearts rather than to trust in the loving word of God. I think that's one of our biggest struggles. If I had to define what the ultimate good is for our here and now culture that we live in, in DFW, I, I frankly think that we've re redefined good as the freedom to autonomously make our own decisions. The freedom to choose whatever we want to choose. But what if a deeper good, a better good, the best 
good is actually the ability to submit to he who knows what is good. That first half of Psalm 16 is a half I just kept skimming over as I was really processing this. I was really focused on the apart from you, I have no good thing piece. And so I had skipped the first two lines. I think they're repetitive and it's really biblical language so it can be easy to skim over if we're being honest. But David says something really important and I think it helps us understand that we're not just attempting to redefine what goodness is, we're also kind of attempting to redefine who gets to define it. Because David says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. That statement by itself is saying, apart from you, I have no good thing, right? That statement by itself can stand alone. When we say you are my Lord, we're saying I am now submitting myself, my desires, my preferences, my will under your authority. And we really struggle with this concept of lordship and submission. I think those are two kind of dirty words, if we're being honest, and for good reason. We have seen those words play out very poorly in our world to the detriment of our society. But when we're saying to God, you are my Lord, we're saying we submit to your authority. We're really drawn to this concept of Jesus as our savior. Jesus as our rescuer, Jesus as our goel, which is the Hebrew word for kinsman redeemer. It's what Boaz was to Ruth. We're drawn to the ideas of Jesus as those things, but we really struggle with the concept of Jesus as our Lord. We want all the benefits of the kingdom without having to submit to the authority of the king. Reminds me of an old Tim Keller quote. He once said that if you serve a God that never offends you, your God is actually just an idealized version of yourself. If you serve a God that never offends you, your God is actually just an idealized version of yourself. So not only have we attempted to redefine what good is, but we've attempted to change who gets the right to define it. Scripture is laced with references to God and his goodness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is. Taste and see that the Lord is. It's everywhere. So if we hold that up, scripture as truth, which we do, then wouldn't it make sense that he who is good gets to define for us what is good? So do I trust God? Do I trust that God's good? And if I do, do I trust he who is good to define for me what is good? That I think is our first hiccup. We redefine what is good. I think the second thing we struggle with is that we attempt to reorder what is good. We live in this constant ebb and flow, this game of tug and war between things that are temporal and immediate and right in front of us and things that are eternal. And oftentimes those things can clash, right? The immediate desires are what uh, scripture would call the desires of the flesh versus what is eternally good for us. In 2010, a professor at UCLA by the name of Hal Hirschfield conducted a study on retirement savings. And his hypothesis was that we struggle to save now for our future retired selves because we can't identify with or envision who our future selves will be. And so he took a test group and a control group. This is 2010, so virtual reality is at the 
cutting edge of its technology, right? It's still being developed. So he takes these VR goggles and he has these test group subjects and he takes pictures of them. They're people that are in my age range. And then through 3D rendering, he ages them to retirement age. So they put these goggles on and they see a three-dimensional version of themselves that is older. And with the con control group, I think he just showed like green fields or something like that. And his hypothesis was dead on. The test subjects who saw a future vision of themselves ended up doubling their retirement savings. All it takes is to catch a glimpse of your future self to see what should be most important to you now. And I think that principle actually applies well beyond just the financial world. I think that can apply to everything in our lives. There's a beautiful passage in Philippians chapter three from the Apostle Paul where he challenges us to zoom out, to step back, to look eternal, and to keep the main thing the main thing. We'll pick it up in verse seven in Philippians three. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. When he wrote this, he was on house arrest, so he literally means he's lost everything. I consider them garbage that I might gain Christ. This is Paul saying in his own psalm-like penmanship, Lord, apart from you, I have no good thing. And not only are the other things not good things, but I consider them garbage. This word is a really unique word in the Greek language. It was only used this one time in scripture. So scholars kind of disagree on the severity of its application and of its usage, but it doesn't really just mean trash. It can also mean animal feces. I consider all these things animal feces <laughs> or trash to be thrown out into the streets and left for the dogs. So not only is he indifferent towards things that are not knowing Christ. He's vehemently against them. He's aggressively against them. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. It's the heart of Christianity. Paul continues on. We pick back up in verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before and now tell you, even through tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul is emphasizing to the believers in Philippi is not to get hung up on the earthly desires. Their God is their stomachs. That means they're rapidly responding to momentary things, to tiny temporal things that are distracting them from their ultimate citizenship, which is in heaven. We exchange this high view of God for the short, immediate, quick fix. And things that take time are often things that we just naturally avoid, right? We are wired to find these quick fixes for things in our lives. There's a reason fast food is a global phenomenon. And there's a reason nobody started making sourdough bread from scratch until the pandemic hit. Nobody had time for it, right? <laughs> like legitimately, and I know those are silly little examples, but I think it applies 
to more serious things as well. I don't wanna use a, a morbid example, but one of the first things that popped into my head was actually attending the memorial service of someone who faithfully walked with Jesus. I don't know if you've had the opportunity to do that. Uh, as a worship pastor, I've had the honor to get to do music at many memorial services. And I can tell you with 100% confidence that I have never seen a loved one, a family, or a good friend get up on stage and through tears share about this person and just say, they owned so many nice things. <laughs> it's not about that. It's not. If this was a person who was a dedicated disciple of Jesus, what are they sharing? They're sharing stories of kingdom influence and generational impact, ways that they played a tiny role in bringing the kingdom of God here on earth as it already is in heaven. They're sharing big stories of large vision and sometimes it takes us reflecting on the life of another to see what's actually most important in our lives right now. With this eternal view in mind, our priorities can be recentered, reshifted, refocused around what is eternally good in our lives. And church, if something is of eternal good to us, then surely it's of daily good to us, right? Another way that we can discern if we're attempting to reorder what is good in our lives is to kind of take inventory of how we use our time. When Kim and I were in college, we took a songwriting class our senior year and they uh, brought in a really great songwriter named Jason Ingram. He's probably the most famous worship leader you've never heard of. He has written so many beautiful songs for the church that we've been singing for the last two decades. And so one of the students ended up asking him a question. I think it was about his process as a songwriter. And his uh, response was really frank. And he just said, listen, you're only a songwriter if your calendar says you're a songwriter. Wow. And his point in saying that, what he was attempting to convey is that the way that we use our time communicates what's most important to us. The way that we use our time communicates what is most important to us. So a moment of deep honesty here, if I gave you access to audit every moment of my life for the last eight years, and you just sat down and looked at it, I think you would come to a conclusion, and pretty easily, by the way, that the most important thing in my life has been my phone. And that's like kind of funny, but kind of unfortunately serious, right? I may not be the only one in this room that feels that way too. Two years ago at dinner, uh, Kim just looked up at me and just really honestly said, I think you're addicted to your phone. And now I don't even need Kim to tell me that because my phone gives me a weekly report of how much time I waste on it, right? Our time communicates what is most important to us, the way that we use our time. Jesus kind of speaks to this in Matthew chapter six, verse 33. He's having a conversation with people who are concerned about some of their immediate needs being met, like food, clothing, and Jesus has this odd response. He says, Seek first the kingdom of God. I think there's two ways that we can do that. Both of them are valuable. I think you can seek first the kingdom of God in a very linear, chronological way. Like there's a reason a lot of people, if you spend time in the word weekly, a lot of times that's first thing in the morning, right? It's a cup of coffee. It's before the to-do list starts growing, right? It's before kids are awake. 
seeking first the kingdom of God with the first time in your day. But I think it can also be said, not just of chronological time, but of priority, right? You're gonna be in, business, in boring business meetings at work. What does it look like to seek first the kingdom there? You're gonna be at travel volleyball or softball with kiddos or grandkids. What does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God there? It's just this natural awareness of what God is doing in and through you as a bringer of his kingdom everywhere you go. And it's not seek the kingdom of God when your travel schedule cools down. It's not seek the kingdom of God once you stop being so busy or once the kids are out of the house. It's not seek the kingdom of God once you hit a crisis point in life. It is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things will be provided for you. Pastor David Guzik has a quote about Matthew 6.33 and I think this quote really sums up how I was feeling on that day in 2020 as I read this scripture for the first time. He says this, this choice to seek first the kingdom of God is the fundamental choice everyone makes when they first repent and are converted. Yet every day after that, our Christian life will either reinforce that decision or choose to deny it. And I think that was the tension point that I was sitting in saying, I, I know I've recognized God is good, but am I living as though I trust that God is good? that he's my one good thing, like Psalm 16 says of him. I think time is a big contributor to that. The way that we use our time communicates what is most important to us. So not only do we redefine what's good, not only do we reorder what is good, but I think lastly, we attempt to replace what is good. I've heard quite a few pastors say this phrase before, but they say that good things become bad things when we treat them like they're the best thing. Good things become bad things when we treat them like the best thing. And I do wanna clarify, good things are meant to add value to our lives. They really are, but they're never meant to hold priority in them. They should add value, but they shouldn't hold priority. I think the confusing thing is we read Psalm 16 too, and it says, apart from you, God, I have no good thing. But then we read James 1:17, and it says there are good good things. James 1, 17 says this, every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. So we do have good things, which means there are good things, but they're only good because the giver is good. A lot of times in premarital counseling, counselors will walk couples through how to set healthy expectations in marriage, right? And the analogy that they will often use is that the gap between unmet expectation and reality is always disappointment. The gap between expectation and reality is always disappointment. I think that exact same thing happens when we take good things and we elevate them to the very best things in our life. Because if all of a sudden I start treating a good thing like it's the best thing, what does that do to my expectation of it? My expectation is skyrocketed. I now expect perfection out of something that was never meant to deliver perfection for me. I think we can do this in a lot of different ways. So maybe you're in a dating relationship and it's going well. It's a healthy relationship, but all of a sudden you're starting to treat that like it's the best thing in your life. So all of a sudden your expectations start to grow and you're getting frustrated that your significant other isn't actually completing you. You're getting really, really angry about these tic-tacky arguments and that you're not on the same page and you're not communicating well. 
and all of a sudden you get frustrated because you've placed an unfair expectation on your significant other to be your everything. Maybe for you, you're a parent and you're choosing to make your child's successes the very best thing in your life. So you have all these dreams and these hopes and these visions for your kids. That by itself is healthy, but when it becomes the most important thing in your life, it gets a little unhealthy. So you're projecting all of these things onto your child and when you're at the t-ball game and they strike out for the third time, you recognize the division one scholarship that you are always dreaming for your child is probably a no-go, right? But the way that frustration gets voiced to your child is through disappointment in them. Maybe for you it's, it's more general and we've just been drawn in by the allure of comfortability and of safety. Those are good things. But when we treat them like the best thing, then we begin to view God's call on our lives through the lenses of inconvenience. And oh, the logistics don't make sense or add up there. And not only that, but when we feel like comfortability and safety, which are two things that aren't really promised to us in scripture, if we feel like those things are now the best things about our lives, there's something that happens internally with us where it breeds this sense of maybe entitlement. Like not only do I care about it, but now I feel like I'm kind of owed safety or I'm owed comfortability. It can warp the way that we view God's gifts to us. Romans 1 lays out a warning for us. It says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. We can't fall into the trap of replacing God with man-made things as our ultimate good. Now, I do believe, I'm a firm believer that when Jesus takes his proper place on the throne room of our hearts, when Jesus is our ultimate good, when we take Psalm 16 two and we embody that daily and we say, you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. I think then our relationship with every other thing in our lives will drastically improve. It will drastically improve. So instead of being frustrated in this dating relationship, you're given the fresh vision of what God's vision for marriage is, a lifelong commitment to be a reflection of Christ's union with his church. As a parent, you're no longer frustrated by your child's shortcomings, but you recognize that God has uniquely crafted and wired your kid in a unique way, and you feel called to step in and help cultivate that to the best of your ability. Maybe instead of being drawn in by the allure of safety and of comfortability, we begin getting comfortable being uncomfortable. We begin to discern our decisions through the lenses of God's word and his will in our lives, not other people's opinions or what would be deemed normal. I really think that when Jesus is in his proper place in our hearts, our relationship with everything else in our lives gets healthier. I don't mean every hardship will go away. I don't mean that you're experiencing financial increase. I'm not saying any of that, but I think your view of it will be healthier. It will be healthier. So three ways that I think 
We're distracted from God as our one thing. We redefine good, we reorder good, and we replace good. I just wanna end our time by asking a few questions of you this morning. If you're in the room with family and friends today, I would, I would love to encourage you, this is true if you're on the live stream as well, would love to encourage you over your next meal time, which I know you're already thinking about, over lunch to process, to sit down with these questions and to really process these together. The first question has to do with who gets to define what is good. It's a, such a softball of a question. It's just, do I trust that God is good? I want you to take some time and wrestle with it and analyze, do I trust that God's good in my head and in my heart and in the way I live? Do I truly trust that he's good? And beyond that, if so, do I trust he who is good to define for me what is good? Second question about reordering, it has to do with time. How can I steward my time differently to reflect that Jesus is the most important thing in my life? How can I steward my time differently to reflect that Jesus is the most important thing in my life? I think we can all sit down with family calendars. I grew up uh, as one of five boys in a very large family. Something had gone terribly wrong if there was a night on the calendar that no space had been filled in our family calendar, right? We're all busy. There are all things. I'm not saying cut off everything that you do, but analyze that and say, am I being conscious of seeking first the kingdom of God and all these things I've committed to? But then think beyond that in your tiny kind of transition moments in and throughout the day. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? For me, I grab my phone and I scroll. What's the last thing you do before bed? Grab my phone and, and scroll, right? I'm allowing my phone to set the e emotional equilibrium of my day, right? That's what John Mark Comer calls it. And he warns us to not do that. So think about tiny things like your work commute, between meetings, how do you fill your time? Am I stewarding my time to be a reflection that Jesus is the most valuable thing to me? Does my time say that apart from God, I have no good thing? Then final question, is there a good thing in my life that I'm treating like the best thing in my life? Remember, good things do add value to our lives, but they're not meant to hold priority in them. So is there something that is a good thing? And I can acknowledge that it's a good thing, but I can also maybe acknowledge that I'm treating it like a little bit more than I should be. I think a, a good question to ask, maybe to probe an answer to this, is if this was taken away from me, <laughs> how would I respond, right? If God is my one good thing, what else am I treating and elevating to that space in my heart? Two months ago, some of our worship team took a songwriting retreat and we just asked the Lord to speak to us and just lay songs on our hearts that would kind of mark the next season of worship for our church. And one of the scriptures, I'd put together a document of scriptures and one of the scriptures that our intern Jillian had been really drawn to was Psalm 16 too. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord and apart from you, I have no good thing. So she began to kind of process that and she began to write on it and you're actually gonna hear what the final product turned into. This team is gonna sing this song over you as a prayer. Then I'm gonna come back out I'm gonna close this up.